Acts chapter 9 is famous. One of the most famous parts of Acts, one of the most famous parts of the New Testament is the conversion of Paul. Paul's conversion experience changed Christianity. I mean, it just changed it. From this moment on, it's different. There are three places in the book of Acts we read about his conversion. Here, Luke tells of it from a narrative standpoint. Then in Acts 22 and Acts 26, Paul shares it in defense of his ministry. Um, and shares a couple of things, especially in chapter 26, about it. It is, it is a, a unique because it is the last time that we have in scriptures that Jesus appeared to anybody, the resurrected Jesus. So it, it, it allows Paul to be considered an apostle for that very reason. It is a unique experience because of that. It's also in some ways a very common experience in the sense that Paul has a personal experience with Jesus. Now, his is Jesus actually being there, different than what, you know, yours and mine by me, but it, it's a reminder that our conversion to Christ, our salvation, whatever you want to call it, is always personal. One of the things I find just absolutely mind-boggling is I'll read people who will say, you know, this business about, you know, Christianity being personal and individual is, you know, is, is, you know it's, it's just selfish and it's garbage, it's blah, 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 blah. I'm like, man, do they not read the New Testament at all? I mean, Jesus, he begins his ministry saying to Peter and Andrew and James and John, hey, guys, come follow me. That's a pretty personal invitation, don't you think? I mean, I did there was no church. I, what I hear is, well, you know, Christianity is about the church, and, you know, the church is this or that. There was no church early on. He goes to a guy named Matthew, Levi, who he's a little tax collector, and says, Matthew, you know, come on. In John, the first chapter, what off, we see Philip and, and Nathaniel in that personal interaction. This is as personal as it gets. I mean, he's saying, Paul, why are you persecuting me? I mean, it doesn't get more personal than that. The purpose of the church is to first honor God and to second to bring people into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, period. That is the end of the story. Read. One of the things we're going through the book of Acts is for that very reason. Remember in the summer, some of you that were here, I preached through the first two chapters of Acts. You picked up in September on three. But my summer series was about the growth and expansion of the church, which was people getting saved. It keeps telling us. The Lord added to their number every day people who were being saved. That's what matters. The purpose of the church isn't to defend doctrine. We do that, yes. It's not our purpose. See, you, you're, you can do things that aren't your purpose and they're important. So protecting the doctrine is important, but that's not our purpose. That is part of the process. Ministry is not our purpose. It's part of the process. We do ministry. Ministry matters. It's not our purpose. Our purpose is always helping people come to faith in Jesus. Why do we do ministry? Well, we love them and we care for them and we want to help their needs so that they may come to faith. Why do we worry about doctrine? Because we know that good, sound doctrine helps people come to faith and lousy doctrine keeps people away from Jesus. So what you have here is this amazing experience of Paul. And this is set up by Luke who is close to Paul, by talking about things already that happened in Paul's life. It's, it's not by accident that Luke, who probably wrote this book while Paul was in prison in Rome, and he's ministering to Paul, or at least have access to Paul from time to time, in chapter 7, 
mentions the fact that while they were stoning Stephen, they laid their clothes at the feet of a guy named Saul. Where do you think he got that from? When Stephen was dead. Saul said, Luke, I was there. I heard everything Stephen said. In fact, I was the guy that when they began to stone him, I was the one holding the stuff, giving approval. What do you think in chapter 8? Twice. Before we get off into all that Philip did, we saw at the end of last year, when persecution broke out, Saul gave approval that Saul was, was breathing monstrous threats, that Saul was wanting to persecute the Christians in Jerusalem. Luke tells us that at the beginning of chapter 8. Why do you think that's there? Because Paul said, Luke, you got to understand from the beginning, I was mad at Jesus. When Paul gives his defense at the end of chapter 26, and he recounts his version, he has Jesus saying to him, Paul, why do you persecute me? And then Paul has this, why are you kicking against the goads. The goads was kind of like a cattle prod. It's what they moved. They would stick cattle with it. Why? I'm prodding you towards me. Why are you fighting me? Did you ever stop to think that all of what Paul did was his resisting Jesus? Why did he have so much animosity? Why did he have so much hatred? The whole time he's fighting Jesus, who's working in his life. This whole time, Jesus is working in the life of Saul. You keep that in your mind. Think about that when you come to the beginning of chapter 9. Now Saul, still, still because he already was doing it, breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. Breathing, snorting. It's the idea of, of, of a wild stallion ready to charge, a bull ready to charge. He wanted murder. There was murder in his heart. Never, I mean, you know, we, David in the Old Testament, so important. Adultery and murder. Paul, the guy that changed the face of Christianity, was a murderer. It's amazing who God uses. And if he can use those guys, he probably can use you. It says this. He went to the high priest, and he asked for letters from him so he could go to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, let's get this picture. Once Stephen died, it says persecution began, people scattered. And a lot of people who had come to Jerusalem for Pentecost and the Passover and become converted now went back home. But locals who were also being persecuted didn't have some place to go back off to in Europe. And so not too far away was the city of Damascus, what we call today in Syria, a little bit north off to the side. And that's where they went. And they left Jerusalem and the surrounding area to go there. Now, Paul had begun, Saul, as he's called back then, but I'll refer to him as Paul, had begun rounding these people up. Notice they said they were followers of the way. They weren't called Christians. We don't see that to Acts 13 years, years later. They were followers of the way, the way being Jesus. It also would be a way 
by using that phrase to kind of be doing persecution hidden, you know, and, you know, hey, I'm a follower of the way. Most people wouldn't know, Romans wouldn't know what that is. But Paul, because they left, didn't stop there. It wasn't enough to run him out. So he got really letters of what we call extradition. Now, here's the interesting thing. The Jews had no authority other than what the Romans would give them. So evidently, what the Romans had done is in matters of Jewish religion, they pretty much gave carte blanche authority to the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin, to the high priest. So evidently, the high priest had the authority from Rome to write letters that would allow Paul to take Jews who had left Rome to go to Damascus or who even lived in the area of Damascus for whatever, back to Jerusalem to face punishment. Now, that, that is wild to us to think that you could do that. I can't imagine in the country we live in that our government would give religious authorities that kind of power. It's exactly what happened. The persecution that started against the Christians started from the Jews. And that's exactly what was going on. And so that's what Paul had. The power to bring them back from the high priest that was given to him by Caesar, no less. It wasn't to be, you know. And he was traveling. He was going to Damascus. It happened, like it's kind of a casual way of saying it, that he was approaching Damascus. He was just outside. And suddenly, get this, a light from heaven flashed around him. So he saw a light flash. Like, you know, like you might think of a lightning bolt or just something popped him. And he fell to the ground. And then he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So there was, there was light and there was sound. There was something seen, something heard. Similar in some respects to Pentecost, there was the visible and there was the audible. Now, we know from the other accounts that the people around him experienced something, but it doesn't appear that they saw what he saw, just saw light, nor did they understand what sounds they heard. They may have understood Paul talking, but they didn't understand Jesus talking. But other people experienced something, but they didn't experience this. Notice, Saul, Saul, repetitive, emphatic. Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? Why are you pursuing me? What you're doing isn't against my followers, it's against me. So when people question a personal relationship with Jesus. You understand to Jesus, he always takes it personal. Never forget, at the heart of all that we are, going all the way back to Genesis, we are created in the image of God. We are his image bearers. It's always personal. We bear the image of God. It's always personal. And so he says, why are you persecuting me, Saul? And notice what he says. Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus. You are persecuting. Now, the term Lord um, can mean a polite term of respect, but that's probably not how Paul would use it, nor how Luke meant it. It, it, it. Paul understood. This was nothing, this was something beyond experience. So at least, at the very least, this is God. So he wants to know God who are similar to Moses at the burning bush. What name shall I lose? The concept of a name, the concept of that personal touch matters. So when Moses at the burning bush says, 
whom shall I say, send me to our people? God says, tell them, Yahweh, I am who I am. Yahweh, Yahweh, the personal, the one who is. So he says, Lord, I don't know who you are. And he may have had an idea. But Jesus clarified, he says, well, I am Jesus, the one you persecute. Can you imagine? <laughs> it's just, sometimes I think, can you imagine having Jesus accuse you of persecuting him? That's not a really cool place to be. But at this second, Paul's not in a really good place. He's blinded by the light. He's on the ground, confronted by the Lord. Not good. He says, get up. And notice, he doesn't save him at this point. He says, get up and enter the city. And it will be told you what you must do. Now, in another account later on, it is at this point that Paul emphasizes that Jesus said, you're going to go to the Gentiles. But we'll, we'll see that more in a minute with Ananias. But he says, you'll be told what to do. Go into the city. I want you to take this, go into Damascus. But you're going to Damascus differently. You were going to go into Damascus full of pride. You were going to go into Damascus arrogant with the, the power to persecute. And now you're going to have people carry you into Damascus. And you're going to go low. And you're going to go humbled. And you're going to be completely powerless. You have no power in your life. You had power over the lives of a lot of Jews. Now you don't even have power over your own life. There should always be something humbling about coming to the presence of Christ. I think for all of us, regardless of who you are, your conversion experience should be humbling. Now I was nine, so I mean... I, I wasn't the best kid at nine, but I wasn't as bad as like some of the kids we have here. I wasn't like that at all, you know. But so it's not when you're young, it's not quite the same. But as time went on, and I began to realize that I was a sinner, even though saved, it certainly became humbling. To this, to now, I'm at an age where, yeah, it's humbling to think that God saves us, calls us, uses us. It's always humbling. I, it, having pride and arrogance when you realize who you are, how does pride exist in our lives, you know? When we realize our sin against God and that without pure grace, we would all be condemned to hell. It's hard to be very prideful at that moment, very arrogant at that moment. And so even as adults, Reflecting on our salvation should be a humbling experience. So the men who traveled with him, they were speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. So they heard. They didn't know what was going on. So Paul probably had to tell them what to do. So Saul got up from the ground, and, and those eyes were open. He could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they took him to Damascus. So we don't know where he went, per se. He went to someone's home. Probably a Jewish guy, obviously. And he was three days blind without sight. He ate, drank nothing. So that's Paul. That's, he's, in a, he's in a miserable state. Now, we don't know for sure exactly where he was in his relationship with Jesus at this point. Well, you know, how, how connected he was, that he, he figured it out. Or what, was Jesus even working his life? Obviously, he'd be praying. Obviously, as a, as a Pharisee, he'd be remembering the scriptures, the Old Testament. So there was, worship, there was stuff going on, repenting of sin. He probably had a lot of sin to repent from. I mean, he, he had a lot. But in the meantime, this is what you need to know in verse 10. 
There was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision or a dream, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. This reminds me over in Samuel of the calling of Samuel who kept appearing to him of other callings. Ananias, let's just think about this for a moment. Ananias, this is the only time we really see him, this particular Ananias. He's one of those guys that are mentioned and you don't really think about him, but how important is this guy? He is the first believer to encounter Paul, to influence him. Paul had two major influences. You see all his letters. You know, Paul, you know, I, you know, I didn't know anything to the apostles in Galatians, which a lot of the stuff in Galatians coincides a lot of things about Paul's time here in Damascus. He makes it clear, you know, Peter and James and John, they had no influence on me, blah, 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 all that stuff. But he never says anything about the influence, the, negates the influence, I should say. Ananias and Barnabas. There were two guys who influenced Paul greatly. Ananias and Barnabas. He doesn't ever deny that. They were not apostles either. And they didn't give him his gospel per se. But just because he didn't get his gospel from then to the apostles, Peter, etc. Doesn't mean people didn't influence his life. Can you imagine in heaven when Ananias got there? The feeling of knowing he, at the very beginning, helped disciple the greatest theologian that has ever lived. And outside of Jesus, the single most influential human being who has ever lived. The guy who took the teachings of Jesus and put them in a form in the letters that forever shaped the entire theology of Christianity. And a man who was one of the greatest thinkers in the history of the world. I mean, maybe at that point you could have a little pride. Yeah, in heaven, that was me. Peter, John, how you guys doing? Yeah, I'm just a guy that influenced Paul. No biggie, it's okay. You know, where, where's the ice cream line? I need some. You know, what, where are the stars in my crown? There should be a couple, you know. We never know the impact we have in other people's lives, ever. And someone who seems, may seem insignificant and weak and in a vulnerable state in your life right now, who you help may one day go on to change the lives of countless people. And they'll never be Paul, I'm not saying that. But they may have an impact on countless people's lives. And you shared a part of that. Everybody, so this is just as an example, everybody connected to our church shares a part of what happens at our church. We're going to baptize however many people we're going to baptize in a few weeks, which means they've come to faith in Christ at some point. Some of them came to faith in Christ before they ever got here. They just haven't been baptized. Some came to faith in Christ here. But everybody some way is connected and has a part of that. We all have a part of what happens in people's lives. Don't ever underestimate how important your part may be. Some of the most influential people in my life were the ladies who taught me in Sunday school when I was little. Now, I remember one of them. I, I went back to the church I grew up in to serve as the associate pastor. I kind of had Joe's job, Joe and Choice combined. I did the work of two of our guys, so, but that's beside the point. Um, still do. Uh, but um, and I remember Mrs. Howard, who she's with Jesus now. <laughs> God bless him, he's with her. 
And uh, she helped teach me. But I remember one day, she was so mad at me. Gosh, she was mad. And she came to my office and just let me have it. She called me Davy, which no one can call me, but she did. And she tore into me and reminded me of everything she ever did for me. And I'm like, yeah, Mrs. Howard, uh, we ain't going to do what you want. <laughs> she goes, I want this done. I'm like, yeah, that ain't going to happen. Oh, man. But, you know, you kn- I, mean, I can remember her so ticked at me. And, uh, but you never know the people's lives you influence. So Ananias has this conversation with God. The Lord Jesus, the Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight. By the way, Straight Street is still a major street in Damascus. Inquire of the house of Judas, at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul. Saul is praying. He's seen a vision, a man named Ananias, come and lay his hands on him so that he might be gaining sight. So I've already prepared Saul for you to go. You need to go, Ananias. And Ananias probably at this point is thinking, I don't think that's a good idea. He says that, Lord. I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints in Jerusalem. This is interesting. I don't know how he's talking to Jesus, okay? I don't think it's an audible conversation they have. It's in a vision. God's working in his life in a very unique way. This is before the New Testament. So God is working in his life. Ananias is responding, which is natural, however he's doing it. And he's just pointing out, sometimes we've got to point out, to, to God, things he may not be aware of. I mean, you know, and it's like Jesus, you know, talking, Jesus saying, you need to go, uh, to, I got it all worked out. And he's like, I don't think, uh, I don't think you know who Saul is. I mean, I don't think you know Jesus, who this guy is. Let me just tell you, and then you'll change your mind, obviously, because I'm just here, I'm just here, Lord, to help you out. You know, there are people who think their job is to help Jesus out. <laughs> and they, I know that because they think by extension, their job is to, you know, tell me what to do and help me out. So, Appreciate that more than you'll ever realize. He says he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. He has authority to put people in prison. Now the Lord said to him, go, for he is a, I love this part, chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. Get this. We all say he's, you know, Saul was called to the Gentiles. Yeah, but more than that. He's a chosen instrument. I mean, in other words, Jesus says, I'm in control. I have chosen him way before this. Never forget, it is Jesus who chooses us. It is not we who choose him. Without going into all the details of all that. But it is humbling for us to remember, we didn't choose him. He chose us. I didn't choose to be a pastor. It was called, so I did it. I'd have chosen another line of work. Oftentimes, the things that God has us do, well, all the time, the things he has us do, he called us. Oftentimes, we tend to forget that. And it's like, you know, Jesus, I'm doing you a solid right now. No, no, you're not. You're either obeying his calling you or you're not obeying his calling on your life. You better figure out what you're doing right now. And as I say, it's always good to go with Jesus. I just do that. And so he says he's a chosen instrument. Here's, he's laying out, here's what he's going to do, and you're going to help tell him. He's going to go to the Gentiles. Oh, and he's going to go to kings and the sons of Israel. He's going to go to everybody. And, and, and Saul did that. You read the book of Acts, it's what he did. And by the way, 
Not any recorded in the New Testament, but we know from other sources outside the New Testament. One day he appeared before Nero. Nero put him to death. But he appeared before Nero, as did Peter. And you know, Paul took his best shot when he did, before he died. We must never forget that the calling of Paul's life was an important calling that had huge ramifications. For in verse 16, he says, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Paul certainly suffered. I'm sure Paul wanted that part in there. Hey, Luke, when you write this story, put that in. Not that he wanted sympathy, but he wanted people to understand he caused suffering. He experienced suffering. But it was for the glory of the Lord. And it should serve as an encouragement to us always. I was, uh, when I was reading this passage, you know, today, in the last couple of days, working on it a little bit, I'm like, man, you know, I really whine and complain a lot compared to what Paul went through. You know, somebody gets upset with me, and I'm like, all right, Lord, I'm through. I ain't dealing with this anymore. I'm up here busting my rear end, I'm studying, I'm preaching, and this, you know, some knucklehead who couldn't find the book of Hezekiah in the Old Testament. God, that just went over their heads, God. It was so just... It's giving me grief. There's no Hezekiah. It's giving me, and there was a Hezekiah, it's not a book. They're giving me grief. Why? I don't want to put up with this. They're bothering me, sending me whatever kicking me off. <laughs> and here's Saul. You, know, you ever read all the things that happened to him? He recounts it like in 2 Corinthians. And, and then eventually, you know, he's just beaten. I mean, everything. And, and we get upset if somebody says something ugly to us. Man. All over the world today, there are Christians who suffer. We don't suffer. We don't suffer for our faith in America. We get inconvenienced. We get made fun of. You know, we don't suffer. They suffered. The price paid by so many people to share the gospel is greater than I can ever imagine. And, you know, to some degree, I'm pretty thankful I don't have to pay that price, to be honest. I don't know that I'd do very good at that. None of us probably would. So Ananias departed. He laid hands on him and said, Brother Saul, can you, Brother Saul, can you imagine? We don't use that phrase anymore. People sometimes say, well, I want to be called my name. You know, what do you call me? In the old days, they just called me Brother David. And I called everybody Brother so-and-so or whatever. You know, and I hate being called Pastor David. Gosh, don't call me Pastor David. I hate that. I hate it. Call me David. If you want to show more respect, call me Dr. Burroughs. If that's not enough, call me revered Dr. Burroughs. I don't care. Just don't call me Pastor David. But we used to call, you can call me Brother David. That's all right. That means you're old, but that's okay. He said, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So by this point, Paul had come to faith because he was going to get the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. Luke was the doctor. He wrote that. 
And he began to sight, and he got up, and he was baptized. You notice what they didn't have to do when they baptized him? It didn't take Paul six weeks of going to classes to figure out if he should be baptized. We talk about this staff sometimes. There are a lot of churches, you got to go to classes. you got to be all this other stuff where they're baptizing you. I'm like, man, just baptize him. Now, sometimes people aren't ready. A friend of mine, he and I have a conversation a couple months back, and he was all concerned this guy come from Catholicism, he'd come to faith, but he wouldn't be baptized. He was all concerned. I said, what are you concerned about? He goes, well, his faith's not complete. He's not this, he's not that. I was like, has he come to Jesus? And he said, well, yeah. I said, man, he'll get there. Don't, why are you hurrying and be baptized? Well, Bob, I said, do you not believe that God can work in his life? Does he have to be baptized for God to do all the things? And he says, well, I, I know that. I, it, 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 and what I'm saying is baptism is important. It is always important. But two things we should never do. One, we should never make people go through classes in order to be baptized. It just drives me nuts. I'm sorry. I just don't see that. And second, let people get there sometimes. Let them take that journey. We'll help them. We'll encourage them. We want them to be baptized. I know Joe's been talking to people this week, and he said, I got to tell some, I got to meet with them to tell them whether they can be baptized or not. I'm like, you're going to tell people, Joe, they can't be baptized? I would never do that. But if that's what you feel like doing, that's fine. <laughs> some people aren't, aren't where they need to be yet. They don't understand. I mean, well, you don't have to take classes. You at least need to understand what baptism is. Paul was at that place. Then he baptized him. And then he took food and was strengthened. And for several days, he was with the disciples who were at Damascus. Can you imagine? Hey, I'm with you guys. I was going to kill you earlier, but hey, let's hang. Let's have some uh, potluck and some deviled eggs, maybe. <laughs> you know, isn't it ironic that Baptists love deviled eggs? That just makes no sense. <laughs> and notice this. Immediately, he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying he is the Son of God. Immediately. Bang. You don't got to wait before you start sharing Jesus. When you come to Jesus, you know when you're ready to start sharing Jesus? That day. Now, Paul's different because he was a brilliantly trained scholar. I get that. And all those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on his name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Saul kept increasing in strength. And confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. Now, get this. This is amazing. Just brand new Christian. Now, Paul, understand, was a brilliant Pharisee, a brilliant scholar. He's going to spend a lot of time. He's going to spend 14 plus years learning about Jesus before he kicks off his ministry in the big way. But he's still out there. He was in the synagogues with the Jews. And he already was proving how Jesus was the Son of God. Oh, and one of the ways he would do that is by saying, you may not know this, but as I was on my journey here to persecute Christians, and I met a guy on the way who changed my life. And Paul would probably begin to share not only how Jesus changed his life, but how he understood that Jesus was the Christ. And ultimately what you do when you share Jesus is talk about how Jesus changed your life. And you share the story of the man who changed your story so that you could help them change their story. And with that, I'll see you on Sunday.